What do you do in a crisis? Our bodies are geared, aren't they, for fight or flight. The adrenaline starts pumping, the pressure builds, and sometimes it helps us with what we need to do. But so often it actually makes us do things that we'll later regret. And we've seen that so far in Exodus, haven't we? We've seen the Israelites coming from one crisis to another. Uh, From their perspective, at least, it's just been from one thing to another. Lack of water, lack of food, attack from the Amalekites. And we've seen them respond by fighting. Attacking the Amalekites, great. Attacking Moses, not so great. Fleeing across the Red Sea, good. Thinking about going back across the Red Sea, not so good. But here, in this chapter, we meet a crisis of a different kind. It's a slow-burning one, but one that threatens the life of the nation nonetheless. Moses is alone at the top. He's doing all the judging, all the decision-making, all the rulings for a whole nation. It's a nation at this point of probably over a million people. That's roughly about the size of the sort of greater area of Leeds. Could you imagine if Leeds City Council was replaced by one person who made all the judgments on the planning, on the parks, on the bins, on health, on housing, on parking, on schools, on events, on benefits? Now some of you are thinking, well it couldn't be much worse than now, could it really? (laughs) But we know, don't we, if we're being serious, there would be one person can't do all those things for a nation. That person would be worn out. And we as citizens would be very, very frustrated, wouldn't we? Imagine trying to get a decision out of that guy, the one guy at the top, or even seeing them. You'd be queuing down the head row, wouldn't you, with no guarantee of ever actually getting to the end of the queue before the end of the day. Well, that was the situation that Moses and the people faced. It was not good for Moses, and it was not good for the people. This was unsustainable, and before long there would be mutiny in the air. This crisis would become a catastrophe. So enter Moses' father-in-law to save the day. Jethro appears on the scene. But he's not here first and foremost to avert a crisis. Actually, the Bible tells us that he's here to hear what God has done for Moses and the people. So that's why we'll start our first point, the retelling of a rescue. Let me just read to you verses 1 to 4 again. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home. Along with her, two sons, the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer. For he said, the Lord, sorry, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Moses gets a visit from his father-in-law. Now I have to be very careful here because I know that my father-in-law watches the video uh, every week uh, after I've given it. So no uh, father-in-law jokes this morning. But Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, a man with many names in the Bible, comes with Zipporah. Moses' wife, and Gershom and Elisa, Moses' children. It's unclear when they went to stay with Jethro. It could be that they never made it back to Egypt. So some people think that uh, 
Uh, on the way, there's this issue in chapter 4 when Moses and Zipporah seem to fall out, so maybe Moses sends her back there. Equally as likely, though, is that Moses sent her away for their safety when things started to hot up in Egypt. What prompts the visit, though, is that Jethro has heard what God has done for Moses and the people. He has heard of how God has rescued them from Egypt. Whatever prompted Zipporah and the kids to be sent away, it's now safe for them to come back to Moses. He's finished his mission, or at least the first part of his mission, and now his family can join him. And the reunion is lovely, but interestingly, the reunion is told between Moses and his father-in-law, rather than Moses and Zipporah. So have a look at verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Here was another desert dweller like the Amalekites, a Midianite. But his reception could not be more different, could it? Moses tells Jethro of all that has happened. And Jethro accepts it as good news. Have a look at verses 10 and 11. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Jethro here acknowledges God is a redeemer, a rescuer. He has rescued his people. He has humbled, arrogant Pharaoh. He is the greatest of gods. Do you see how this is different from last week with the Amalekites? The Midianites and the Amalekites were both biologically descendants of Abraham. The Midianites through a later wife of Abraham, Keturah, and the Amalekites through Esau. Both of them had seen the same events. God had rescued his people from Egypt. And both of them lived in roughly the same place in the desert. But the difference is that Jethro accepted this news of rescue as good news. Blessed be God, he's greater than all the other gods. Amalek heard the same news and heard it as bad news. God has rescued his people and brought them out here. Now what Jethro believed before is ambiguous. But after he hears what God has done, he is convinced that the Lord is God. So much so that he offers sacrifices to the Lord. Burnt offerings, usually associated with averting wrath. And peace offerings, normally associated with a, a restoring of fellowship, like Moses and his father-in-law. Peace offerings were accompanied by a meal. See, most sacrifices would be totally burnt up, or the priests would eat them. But the peace offering, you would eat uh, most of the food that you brought together. And that seems to be what happens here. They eat this meal together, they enjoy this fellowship together. Seemingly, Moses and the elders are happy to join in with this meal with Jethro. They are happy to accept him as fellow worshippers of the true God. Otherwise, they wouldn't have joined in with his sacrifices, would they? They wouldn't have eaten along with him. So even here, back in Exodus, even here, foreigner and Gentile are accepted in after hearing the good news, believing it, and receiving it as good news. So all seems really well with Jethro. But things are not so well with Moses and the Israelites. And Jethro can see that. And so our second point, our longest of the three, a reorientating of leadership. Let me just read to you uh, verses 13 uh, onwards. 
The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he says, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make known to them the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people will certain, with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Here is the crisis. A crisis not from the people, not from the nations around, but from the leaders. Indeed, the leader. The lack of structure of the nation is causing a problem. The lack of other leaders in the nation risks wearing out not only Moses, but the people as well. Neither of them are doing well out of this arrangement. Now, there are three ways that we could look at this sort of interaction between them. All of them have merits, so we're going to look at sort of three different ways of looking at this. The first way of looking at it is a practical critique from a peer, a practical critique from a peer. This is by far the most common view in the commentaries, books, and leadership manuals, and everything that's been written in the last hundred years or so. Jethro, a leader in Midian, comes in with a fresh pair of eyes, and he sees straight away that organisational structures of Israel need to change. Moses, as one man, cannot provide the leadership of the nation by himself. Like the incident on top of the hill in the previous chapter, it showed that Moses needed help. If you remember, he needed help to hold up his arms. He cannot run the affairs of the people alone. It says it quite plainly, doesn't it, verse 18. You are not able to do this alone. Jethro has experience in leading a nation. He knows what Moses needs to do, so he shares his earthly wisdom with Moses. Which is basically, you need to delegate some responsibility and some authority. And not just haphazard, Jethro provides him with a structure, doesn't he? A plan. Organised at every level. Tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands. It's a helpful corrective to the idea that people sometimes have that God prefers no structure. Let everything be organic. But structures can be helpful if rightly done. And no structure, as we see here, doesn't lead to harmony. It leads to fights and disputes. Now I know that rosters and members meetings and constitutions and elders and deacons can all feel a little bit unorganic, can't it? But if they're done rightly, they're actually there to help both the the leaders and the church. It's actually a good thing. They're there to stop problems, not to cause them. But as with all this, it's how they're done that's the key. I'm aware that I've much to learn in this area, and I'm so thankful for your guys' patience and grace towards me. Bible teachers aren't always great organisers. All of us have different gifts, don't we? And structures, when they're done rightly, help us use those gifts. We get the right people in the right places, using their gifts for God's glory. And viewing this section uh, from this angle is helpful. It's got some real merits, hasn't it? Especially given recent scandals across the evangelical world where leaders have, have hoarded power and refused to pass it on, damaging themselves and their congregations. There's much for us to learn here, isn't there? Having said all that, that is all helpful, but I can't help 
feeling that this is not the main reason why that passage is there. It's something that we can learn from it, but if it's really about leadership structures, then don't you think it's a bit out of kilter with the rest of the section? Sort of ignores the context of what, what's happening. Why is it here in Exodus at this point, just as they're arriving at Mount Sinai? Why is it not somewhere else? So let's have a look at it from a second angle. Help from the family. Imagine if the Israelites had brought this concern to Moses. Okay? We've seen over the last few weeks, haven't we? They're not so great with putting things across. I imagine it would have gone something a little like this if they were doing the same thing as Jethro. They would be saying, why don't you have any time for us, Moses? Why don't you care about our personal disputes? Have you brought us out in the wilderness so we can kill each other fighting over things while you just sit there? It was never like this in Egypt. There the leaders had time for us. They had proper laws and judges. Who are you to judge us? I think it would have gone something like that from what we've seen of the Israelites, wouldn't it? But Jethro's raising of the matter is a million miles away from that. He's here to help, not to hurt. So yes, he has some things that he needs to say to Moses that Moses needs to change. But he words them not as an attack, but as advice. As helpful advice. And I think we're supposed to have help ringing in our ears as we read this section. Moses' second son here is called God is my help. Which is explained for us. It tells you what his name means. This is the only time Moses' second son ever gets a mention. A bit poor for him, isn't it? But it's a reminder that there's help there. Jethro is help from the family. He is technically a foreigner, yes. A child born of Abraham, but not an Israelite. But did you notice as we read it through, what is emphasised again and again and again is that he's related to Moses. The word for father-in-law is used 13 times in this short chapter. That's basically every other verse, or only 27 verses, it's mentioned 13 times. He's got a name, normally you get the name, but it's his father-in-law. His father-in-law, the father-in-law of Moses. So he is a foreigner, yes, but he's also family. And he comes to Moses as family, as a helper. One of my favourite proverbs is this. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Jethro is his friend, his father-in-law, his family. But part of that is actually telling Moses the truth. He can't go on like this. What you are doing is not good, he says. And we're the same, aren't we? Sometimes we need help from the family. We need someone to point out where we're going wrong. And I think that's one of the hardest parts of church life. We don't like giving that kind of feedback, so we don't like having those conversations, and we don't like receiving that sort of thing either. We don't like it either way. It offends our pride. It puts us on the defensive. But Jethro was trying to help Moses, and he did it in a really loving way and in a really sensible tone. In contrast to the Amalekites, Jethro the Midianite helps the people by speaking the truth to the people. He's not there to wipe them out, he's there to help them out. And that's certainly a model to the Israelites, isn't it? And to us. But there is a final way to look at this sort of interaction between them, and that's seeing it as the voice of God, the voice of God. In this chapter, there are several links back to the story of creation in Genesis 1-3. to 
In verse 9, Jethro rejoices for all the good that God has done to his people. The meaning of Moses' son, Eliezer, is pointed out as being helper. That's the same word that's used for Eve in Genesis. There's that repeated phrase of morning and evening. You stood there morning and evening as it's a refrain in Genesis 1. There's the presence of Moses' wife who only appears three times in Exodus. And there's the people brought before Moses like all the animals brought before Adam. And like in Genesis, we have something in the midst of all that goodness, one thing that is not good. It is not good for Moses to be alone. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that there are sort of connections between them. After all, we're told in the New Testament that Moses wrote Genesis. But if we look at that passage through this lens, it sort of broadens it out a bit. It sort of makes it more about the whole of humanity rather than just the leaders. Like Adam... Moses needed help to rule. The tasks given to mankind weren't just his alone, actually he needed help to do them. And the tasks God gives us are so rarely solely just our responsibility, aren't they? They're not just our burden. And so God gives us each other. We need each other. It's not good for us to be alone. And that's true whether we're in church leadership or not. The Bible calls us all to bear one another's burdens. We saw that last week as Aaron and Hur helped Moses keep his arms up during the battle. They bore the burden quite literally with him. And that is what we are to do. I'm so thankful for those who helped me bear the burden of leadership over the last few years, for Richard and for Mike. It's been wonderful to be able to, to have that support and help. All of us need that. Remember, there are leaders of tens here as well as thousands. Our task of seeing God's kingdom grow in Otley and beyond is a burden that we share together. All of us have a part to play. All of us have part of the burden to bear. Here's a small one, for example, in our church, small but essential for a few of you maybe. Setting up the building on a Sunday. It's notoriously hard to get people to do that. We've had some guys who are here this morning who've been on that uh, roster for seven years. That is incredible. Imagine doing that for seven years. That is wonderful that they do that. We've had some guys who've tried it for a month and then left the church. <laughs> and a couple of that a few years ago. It generally may be quite scared for a little while to put anybody uh, on that rotor. But we need more to bear the burden, to carry the load. Could that be you? Could you team up with someone else to help you bear the burden? Can you take that burden off someone else's shoulders? All of us need to help one another. And we don't need a prophetic word from a Midianite priest. We have the rest of the Bible, don't we? So Philippians 2 verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Or Galatians 6 verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. How can we do that practically? How can we help one another bear the burden, carry the weight? But hang on. Some of you are thinking, well, haven't we been saying all the way through in this section that we need to be careful not to read ourselves immediately into Moses? You know what I'm saying? As though we are the mediator, whereas the Bible sees us more like the Israelites. Well, okay, if that's true, what do the Israelites do here? What's their role? Weren't they actually the people who Moses would be giving the responsibility to? Wouldn't they be the one who would be taking on more of the burden? Wouldn't they be the ones who are helping in the administration of the nation? 
And even if we take Moses as the Christ figure, the mediator, did not Jesus also, as soon as he started his ministry, get a team together of 12 people? 12 people to be with him and for him to send out to preach, it says in Mark Mark, Mark 3. They were there to bear the burden of ministry with him. And again, in that picture, are we not those who bear some of the burden as disciples of Christ? Not the burden of sin, Christ took that all on the cross. But we share the burden of ministry, don't we? We share that burden together with each other as part of a team, as a partnership, a fellowship in the gospel. And again, I'm so thankful for the way that we do that as a church. How well, we've already done that this morning. We've seen all the different gifts at youth, haven't we? Setting up for the Victorian Fair. We'll see it this afternoon uh, as different people do different things. We'll do that over Christmas as we welcome each other's friends and family and neighbours at carol services. We'll do that week on week as we teach and build one another up. It's actually really humbling and exciting to see all people at church use their gifts. It's really lovely the way that we work together as a church family. Together we're more than the sum of our parts. You can do things I can't do. And we can all do things that will help one another and help one another bear the burden. Moses sees the wisdom of this. And we should too. But we'll see as well. Moses' response is a response of humility. Let me read to you the last part. Verses 24 to 27. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, chiefs of hundreds, of fifties and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matters they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Moses listened. It would have been tempting for Moses to go down that line that he did with the Israelites. Remember when they were challenging him? You don't grumble against me, you grumble against the Lord. This is how God has set it up. But he doesn't. He sees the hand of God in this, and he listens to his father-in-law. It's always a wise thing to listen to your father-in-law. <laughs> but seriously, he takes this course correction humbly. He doesn't try to defend or justify himself. He sees the wisdom of what's been said, even though it wasn't him that said it. We might have been tempted to see Moses as, as high-handed or arrogant like, like Pharaoh in the previous passages. You might be thinking, maybe just Moses doesn't like being told anything's wrong. But do you see, in direct contrast to that comment in verse 11 about Pharaoh being arrogant, Moses is meek and humble. It's not without reason that Numbers 12 verse 3 says that Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Now, I don't know about you, I really hope that's an editorial comment that's been added. Because if Moses wrote that, it sort of takes away the force. And doesn't it? I'm more meek than all of you. But he takes this advice meekly. He takes it humbly. And I don't know about you, but that's not my inclination when people correct me. When corrected, I tend to get defensive and try to justify myself. I tend to get upset and take it personally. Or I get indignant and I try and look for all the issues in that person that's told me that, so that they can't tell me it. But Moses, when corrected, listens. The book of Proverbs puts it bluntly, as it normally does. Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, 
But whoever hates correction is stupid. It's just there, isn't it? So how do we take correction? How do we hear it? When we hear it face to face, when we have conversation, when we hear it in a sermon, when we read it in the Word. What do we do when we're confronted with something that we need to change? Do we listen? Do we take it to heart? Do we act? Moses acts. He appoints those other leaders. This actually happens in Deuteronomy 1, when they're about to leave Mount Sinai. This might mean that this passage is slightly out of chronological order, that was more normal in the ancient world. But it means that he does it. Whatever, whenever he does it, he does it. He actually acts on what he hears. He doesn't just go, oh, that's a really good idea. He actually does it. And he does it partly because Jethro tells him what will happen. Verse 23, if you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people will also go to their place in peace. In Shalom. If Moses listens and Moses acts, which he does, the end result for the people will be shalom, will be rest, peace, wholeness. Both sides will be able to live in peace. Neither side will be worn down by the other. And catastrophe will be averted. The crisis will be over. So in the end, there was no need for fight or flight, but insight. So when we hit those crises, all of us hit those times, don't we, in our lives that are hard. Sometimes what we need is a bit of insight, isn't it? A bit of good advice or correction. A bit of help from the family. A bit of help from above, from the word. What we see here is that crisis need not always lead to catastrophe. Crisis can lead to calm, to shalom, to peace, if we listen to the right advice. If we're willing to play our part. So let's pray that like the Israelites and Moses, we can work together to bear one another's burdens. Not just for our own good, but for the good of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for that visit from Jethro. Father, thank you for the way that you averted that crisis in Israel. And we pray for ourselves. Father, we don't want catastrophe. Father, we don't want uh, to wear one another down. So, Father, give us that wisdom that we need. And, Father, help us if we're corrected, if we're challenged. Father, help us to respond humbly. Help us, Father, to, to listen and act for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.